From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Peter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. And uh, Zach, I don't know about you, but here right now, it is snowing like crazy. <laughs> yeah, we, we managed to have our get our snowfall in Seattle in uh, last week. So this this week is, uh, has actually been not too bad. It was actually kind of sunny today and not warm, but not cold. And, you know, it's it's it feels like possibly here on in the Northwest that uh, – we might be getting through the end of winter and into spring, which is which is good because one of my favorite times to to enjoy food and beverage is spring. I love the sort of transitional seasons. It's it's kind of like an excuse to start getting into some uh, fresh produce, which God can be miserable during the winter, and and a chance to to sort of transition away from our sort of uh, dark spirits and you know, full-bodied red wines into something a little livelier. I started tasting some 2018 rosés, which is always exciting. Oh, you know, rosé season Zach. is here. Uh, never left, but it's back again. I don't know. What's going on with you, man? How, how are you getting through the snow? What are you drinking to uh, I mean, to I was just going to complain that I haven't had a snow day yet. That was where I was going with this conversation. Well, you're the boss, man. Who's going to – Who's you're the one who gets to decide. What are we complaining well, there about? Hasn't been, there hasn't been a big enough snow to have uh, that yet, which is kind of crazy. I don't know if you know if we're going to get one. Uh, but you're instead talking about like transitional – you know, produce. I, I just wanted to complain about not having enough snow for a snow day so that I could have a hot toddy this season. Ah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that never happened. It's fine. I'm not bitter about so it. So is a hot toddy your, like, favorite warm cocktail? Yeah, I don't really like warm cocktails, to be super honest with you. I think they're gross for the most part. Uh, but I do enjoy a hot toddy. I really – I you know what I really hate, which I don't know if we talked about on a podcast a long time ago, but I, I hate with a passion mulled wine. Uh, I, yeah, think yeah, yeah. I think it's disgusting. Um, like, you know, mold wine or vin brule, if you will. I think it's like just so gross. I feel like maybe Tim likes it though. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, we maybe can ask him about that in a little bit when we bring him on the podcast. But, We're going to have some more issues no, with Tim's preferences of wine in a moment. But, every, but it's funny Every time you manipulate wine, you heat it up. You maybe <laughs> put it in a bourbon barrel, you know, flash. I just don't like it. And uh, so it's, it's not my thing. But I think I, I like a good hot toddy every once in a while. I, so, I, but wait, how do you – how do you feel about like coffee cocktails? Because I feel like those are kind of divisive in in our industry. Like they just remind I, me of my like grandmother. So for you me, had a more fun grandmother than me. Yeah, like the whole like Irish coffee thing. I mean, uh-huh. or Bailey's and coffee. I can appreciate them, but I, I don't want them. I'm I'm also like not someone who traditionally likes my uppers with my downers. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like I was never a Red Bull and vodka person. I was going to say, we're not going to do a Four Loco podcast coming no, up? No, no Four Loco podcast. Although, you I've know, been drinking all that actually, Four Loco for no reason. We should actually do a podcast where we just drink Four Loco the entire podcast oh, and then God. like, and just see what happens. You know, it'd be kind of hilarious. <laughs> I, oh. then, you know, like I feel like we could get like some more people in the studio, see what's yeah. going on. It's yeah, like I mean, that's our podcast meets Jackass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throwing it back so, for you kids. I'm just, I'm not really, I don't know. I'm not really into the, the, the hot cocktail though, the, the coffee cocktail as well. Like I just, people try to do it. It doesn't really speak to me. I, I definitely, I just want like basically whiskey, you know, like give me a, <laughs> give me a, give me a whiskey, Cold whiskey. Fine. you know, that'll warm me up. Why do I need to heat it up first? But the hot toddy, I like, I'd like to point out to everyone that I think, <laughs> I think Adam was born at age 55 and he's just stayed there his entire life. Shut the hell up, man. I was not born at the age of 55. I just don't traditionally want a hot cocktail. So sue me. I think there's like nothing wrong with that. And keep your Vin Brule shit out of my house. I'm look. I'm with you on the mold wine. To me, like wine is not a beverage to be cooked unless you're cooking with it, in which case like great. But yep. like I feel like 
I do like warm cocktails in the in the appropriate season. The hot toddy also delicious. I agree. I'm what is the appropriate fan. season besides winter? Yeah, but that's, that's my point. But 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 winter is a third is a quarter of the year, man. That's one of our seasons. Like you got to enjoy the hot cocktail when you're when you're fucking freezing. And like I feel like as an adult. I don't feel super okay being like, I'm going to go have hot chocolate. But you put a little bit of peppermint schnapps in that hot chocolate. Now I feel like an actual adult, not like a nine-year-old. Yeah, and, I still feel uh, like a nine-year-old, but that's fine. I think that's the other thing, too, is like we like the Wait, hot what were you chocolate. doing at nine? Jesus Christ. Living like drinking, life. drinking hot living toddies? life. I was hard fucking living. I Man, mean, it I didn't also... even get cold in Atlanta when you were a kid. This is like, it feels like a well, lie. See, that's where you're wrong because I'm not from Atlanta. Oh, okay. I just went to college there. Gotcha. Come on. I gotta, it's so hard to get to know a person over over <laughs> over the podcast when we're on two coasts. Yeah, just you wait till we start drinking four locos and we'll really get to know each other. Exactly. And then we'll tell a lot of secrets. Um, but <laughs> anyways, to flash forward to uh, the actual topic at hand that I'm sure people are actually here to listen to. Um, you know, we are talking about manipulating wine. Uh, or what is wine specifically? Uh, you know, we we've been talking a lot in the office uh, over the past few months about this massive phenomenon. You know, obviously running a reviews department as well, we get lots of wine submissions, and and a, a, a wine that's come in a lot recently is a new product that I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with, whether or not they've consumed it or not, which is barrel bourbon barrel aged wines. And we've seen this phenomenon rise at about the same time that we've seen the rise in bourbon barrel aged beer and the rise and the continued rise in bourbon, you know, as a whole, right? So for those that are unfamiliar, bourbon continues to be the behemoth of of spirits among the 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 cocktail conscious, the the spirit conscious, if you will, right? So vodka is still the number one seller when it comes to to you know spirits in America, but bourbon continues to to grow and eat that market share. And you've seen a lot of uh, other alcohol companies, uh, you know, spirits companies, et cetera, try to catch that trend. So you see scotches that are now saying that they're aged in bourbon barrels, which is really interesting because, I mean, come on, I, I like the scotch as a different spirit. Um, you also now see beers that are being aged in bourbon barrels and you see wines that are now all of a sudden, for some reason, being aged in bourbon barrels. So, you know, my colleague Tim wrote a really interesting piece about the whole phenomenon and the backlash. And his his headline was really interesting, which is what I want to talk about today, which is that, yeah, fine, bourbon barrel aged wine isn't wine, but that's okay. And so I've got Tim now in the studio with me to talk about the whole phenomenon with bourbon barrel aged wine. But before we let Tim join the conversation... Zach, what do you think of this whole phenomenon? So the bourbon barrel aged X phenomenon to me is like this fascinating study in marketing and also just how many fucking X bourbon barrels there are out on the market. Like I was discussing this with a winemaker the other day and the reality, someone who does not make a bourbon barrel aged wine, I should clarify, that the market for and the availability of X bourbon barrels, because by law, bourbon has to be made in entirely new barrels. So once you finish making your bourbon, you as a distillery, if you make only bourbon, can't do anything with those barrels. They have to be either resold to someone else or I guess, you know, burned or something, you know, there's or turned into, you know, fucking dumb furniture or whatever the hell you're going to put in your tasting room. Like the point is, 
there's not a there's not like with a winery or 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 even some other distilleries who might buy a barrel and reasonably think that they can use it for 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, obviously people make bourbon with that kind of age, but most bourbon is not going to be aged that long. So there's this tremendous glut of barrels on the market. And as a result, it becomes sort of a compelling vessel for someone who has recognized, as you pointed out in the open, Adam, that like bourbon is super popular. And if you say bourbon barrel aged on a product, doesn't matter what the fuck it is, people will buy it. And so that, I think, has driven a lot of it. I also think, like, I don't care, and I mean that in two ways. Like, I don't. I agree with sort of Tim's headline or whomever wrote the headline um, that, like, it's not really real wine. I mean, in the way that we think of it, where, where it's meant to represent sort of a place and a time and all that. But also, like, I don't know. Who gives a shit if people like it? Like, it's fine. Like, you know, a lot of the the widely available sort of mass-produced, relatively inexpensive wine, which some of the bourbon barrel-aged stuff isn't, and that's a whole other other part of this conversation that I want to get to. But the stuff that's cheap, that shit ain't real wine either. Like, there's all kinds of additives put in. You know, they they are going to add oak extract to it anyhow, or they're going to put sugar in it, or they're going to add acid. They're going to add, you know, mega purple or other sort of coloring agents like None of that stuff is free of manipulation anyhow. So I don't know if you want to put it in a bourbon barrel and call it bourbon barrel-aged wine. Like To me, it's probably a slightly lesser sin than some of those other ones. Yeah, I'm going to come oh, in wait, here. Oh, oh, now Tim's going to join? Tim, were you invited Welcome, to Tim. join the conversation? Hi. Welcome, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now, Tim, you did write the article. Uh, what do you think about what Zach had to say? Yeah, I'm just going to come in here now and finally talk about the article that I've written and spent you two spent – the last 15 I'd just like minutes to point out, talking about <laughs> for our listeners that and, for once Tim wrote an article we're talking about that's not a list so congratulations Tim well it's funny you should mention that Zach because I'm currently working on another list which is called my top favorite podcast hosts and you don't make that list. <laughs> so that's the only I, I, list I'm working on but, but no but I do right because I'm also <laughs> your boss so I hope that I'm like number one opinion rapidly shifting at the moment Tim <laughs> Still under advisement. Anyhow. No, so one thing thing I'll say about this, um, let's start with the headline because I think that's, yeah, the way we're all looking at it. When we talk about bourbon bourbon barrel-aged wine not being quote-unquote real wine, I think what we're trying to say there is that the most important people in this process, i.e. those making the wine and those drinking it, neither of them really want people to think of this product as wine. Those making the wine are marketing it in such a way that they they do everything possible to to, to make it look like a completely different product. Um, as I mentioned in the article, they're presenting it in bottles which look closer to um, traditional spirits bottles, especially single malts, bourbon bottles, than what you might normally see for wine. Um, the glasses they want us to drink it out of, the labels on these bottles, everything is trying to make it look more like a high-proof spirit than a traditional vessel for presenting fermented grape juice. Um, And then there's those who are drinking the wines. I mean, it's very clear from the way that these companies are marketing their product as well that the people they're targeting are those that don't traditionally drink wine. Um, These are high ABV products that regularly hit 16% ABV. They're, they're, they're very, um, they have pronounced sort of jammy notes. They're not very fruity. They're very low in tannins. They're very smooth drinking despite being so alcoholic. 
And I think they're marketed again as, as, as a product which someone who traditionally chooses their drink based upon ABV content is going to say, hmm, I can drink that wine. That's for me. Maybe not, you know, maybe that's not 12%. Or, you know, this is a real, this is a real, um, a real product, you know? Wait, so Tim, like, just are you beating around the bush and trying to basically say that this is a product made for real men who think they drink real manly stuff? I mean, is that basically what we're saying? Like, but I mean, honestly, call a spade a spade at this point, like, because that's what it sounds like to me. Is that what we're saying? I'm not going to put words in anyone's mouth here, but um, I, I think definitely those that might associate themselves with the phrase real man, this is a drink for them. Right. Okay. Because that, I mean, that's actually really interesting to me. The other thing I think that's interesting is the way you're describing the wine right now. To me, sounds a lot more like the way we would describe a bourbon barrel-aged stout, in my opinion, right? It's big. It's 16% alcohol. It's very smooth. It's a little sweet. For me, there's not a lot going on in bourbon, bourbon barrel-aged stouts. I know craft beer people, they're super highly collectible. I get it. I know a lot of people love these beers. But for me, the reason why they're not interesting is because I think the power of the bourbon barrel really kind of like blows away everything else about the beer and just adds like a liquor and a sweetness to the beer that isn't what I like in a stout. And I find that to be very similar with the bourbon barrel-aged wines, right? So, but I do also think it's interesting what you said, which is that you don't think these are wines made for normal wine drinkers. But do we have data that supports that? Do we know that these aren't, you know, these are wines that are bringing in a new market to the, you know, into the world of, of, of wine drinking? Like, is this a gateway wine, if you will? Or do we think these are wine drinkers that used to drink 16.5% California Zinfandels, right, or big red blends that are now just switching to this? And we might not have that information. I'm just really curious as a, you know, a podcast host who's number one on your list to understand sort of like where where this whole theory is coming from, how you develop the theory from from the research that you were doing. So as part of the article, um, I spoke to Wine.com code founder, and one of the, the things he said to me that's very difficult about trying to analyze this category is that it's very new and very recent. And he said, because of that, he doesn't want to start making any assumptions about the category. He doesn't want to say to me, for example, that this is a growing trend, because if you have zero sales in year one, and then you have 800,000 sales in year five, that's an amazing amount of growth. But let's talk about that growth in 10 years time. Where does that go? And then we can talk about, you know, this is a style of wine that's here to stay and has developed or it hasn't. Um, but one of the things I think when we talk about your point of are the people drinking it, those that traditionally maybe opted for a, a huge, you know, extracted Zinfandel or are they new drinkers? One thing I would point to is the average price of these wines. And, you know, you're looking at bottles, I think none of them drops below $15, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Zach, but I think that's technically considered a premium wine. And Oh, it's like ultra premium or something. The, the categories that, that are used to designate wine by, via price are weirdly confusing because, like, anything above, like, $8 a bottle is, like, super premium, which might not be how most of us think of it. But, yes, it is It's definitely not the bottom of the of the price scale $15 a bottle is you know on the higher end for most wine. Yeah, and I think you know we're talking about that as an entry level price point for Bourbon Ballarat wines 
And that even goes up to offerings which average $30. You know, I think Cooper and the Thief, and then it's even higher end bottling is $60. So these wines are not traditional Zinfandel drinkers, in my opinion. I personally think that it's a new category of drinkers. And I think, great, good for them. So, but to that question or to that point, Tim, why do these people want bourbon barrel aged wine as opposed to, say, bourbon barrel aged beer, as Adam talked about, or just fucking bourbon? Like, if the flavor they want is these sort of intense flavors that are derived from the bourbon barrel, like, have you, do you have a theory about why wine that has those or, you know, or whatever that has those, those flavors? associated with it has become so popular like is it that people want to feel like feel like wine is sophisticated and so they want to say they're drinking wine but they also want don't want to sort of compromise on any of the the sort of flavor notes that they tend to prefer or like i guess it just seems like you know if if the t- typical perception of wine is a little bit at odds with how these products are sold you know you kind of make this great point in the um in the article about how you know the the, the not just the the flavors but the language that's used is sort of at odds with how most people would describe their wine. You know, there, there's no discussion of where the wine comes from. There's not much discussion of varietals. It's mostly about, you know, sort of either flavors or sort of, I don't know, you talk about like this sort of spirit of like rebellion and, you know, doing your own thing, being, you know, again, to come back to Adam's point, like being your own man, you know, why do these people want to be drinking a thing that is at least, you know, sort of considered or labeled as wine? So again, this is this is anecdotal. This is we're, we're trying to derive conclusions here from something which is you know a pretty new category. But one thing, when we've been having these conversations in the office, one thing that's come up time and time again um, among many of our colleagues is, especially when referring to their parents, that their dads, who would normally be reaching for the brown spirits, maybe that's a way that they're connecting with because you know we work here for Vine Pair. We one third of what we do is focused about wine, despite what some people think about the name. You know, it's it's only a third of it. But maybe, you know, some of my colleagues who review wine, they can't connect with their dads who traditionally drink brown spirits because their their parents don't understand that drink. Suddenly, one day they come across bourbon barrel aged wine. They say, OK, I'm going to try that. I like bourbon. Maybe this is finally the wine for me. Maybe I don't like an extracted sort of tannic style from Bordeaux or underripe and I find that too difficult to understand suddenly I try this and this is something I can connect with and finally I can connect with the people that are drinking wine at the dinner table you know that's what's socially acceptable we're not drinking beer at the dinner table despite what some of our other colleagues want us to do here we're not drinking spirits at the dinner (laughs) table so you know that's that's an inclusive way that they can they can drink wine with the rest of us because I I kind of see where you think this is a new a new drinker coming in, but the bulk of me thinks you're wrong. And the reason for that is because the way that I interpret bourbon barrel aged wines is that they the the majority flavor, the major player if you will, is wood. And there has always been a wine drinker in America that has preferred an extremely over-oaked Napa Cab style wine, right? At a high price point, at a $50 to $100 price point. It's a very popular style of wine. And for me, all bourbon barrel-aged wines do is take the oak and turn it up to 11, right? So it's even, you know, a, a larger wood flavor. So I think that all bourbon barrel aged wines are doing is stealing the market share 
from the big over-oaked mass-produced Napa cabs. And they are not bringing a new drinker into the market. Prove that I'm wrong. So, I mean, I would like to hear what Zach has to say after this. But one of the things I think that maybe discounts your theory there, Adam, is that, yes, some of the characteristics that you're talking about are consistent with bourbon barrel-aged wines and, you know, huge Napa cabs. But in Napa cabs, at least you still get tannins. In Napa cabs, at least you still get fruit. It might be jammy. It might be overly ripe. But you still get those characteristics. What you find in these wines is that it's 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 all wood, it's all smoke, it's caramel, butterscotch, um, but yeah, actually, smoke itself, you know, that's a word which features on a lot of the websites and a lot of the copy on bottles, and smoke's not something which normally would feature as a quality tasting note, even in a heavily oaked wine. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that given that there's no fruit characteristics, as I've said, and no tannins. This is completely different. I think that's that's where I'm going with that. What do you think, Zach? So what I would say on this topic is this is going to be strange, so bear with me. But I think there is a weird way in which wine as a beverage is being the, – the boundaries of it are being played with by – on maybe on the one hand with these sort of like bourbon barrel-aged wines, which I think as you know, Tim explained, maybe and, – and you know maybe take some of the flavor – profile that we associate with an extreme edge of wine, you know, those really super ripe, heavily oaked um, Cabernets and whatnot, and then kind of goes even beyond that and is like, well, shit, we can go further. We can go all oak, all those flavors, and, and lose some of the sort of the Venice, the wine character in the first place. And on the other, maybe extreme, but weirdly sort of parallel or analogous, you have sort of the thing we've talked about a bunch, which is sort of some of these natural wines and things like that, which play with wine faults and things that we might consider not standard flavor profiles within wine, but say, hey, well, you know, if we like a little bit of Britannomyces on our Burgundy or Bordeaux or Southern Rhone, et cetera, well, what if we go way heavy on that and there will be an audience for that flavor profile? And I think, you know, probably fairly, the three of us could be categorized as, in a lot of ways, appreciators of classic wine styles you know we like well, duh. but yeah, i mean well, <laughs> so you're basically i don't think we're wrong you're basically i'm just saying, saying wait no but you're so you're basically saying that like these are these both you're, you're basically comparing now natural wine to bourbon barrel aged wine you're saying these are like flavors on the edges of either of either case right either spectrum, sure they're right? they're pushing right, okay they're pushing the extremes of what just, of what we sure. label as wine out in these dimensions and you and I, and I think Tim, don't really want to go to either of those extremes. Like, we don't see those wines as being appealing. We don't see those flavors as being appealing and as the Some of the natural wines I do actually yeah, yeah, yeah. appeal to the bourbon barrel age, but that's another well, thing. But, but again, you know, my point is I think, like, I don't – these are products where, to me, I don't have an issue with them in the stance, sense of, like, people should drink what they think tastes good to them. My issue with them is as comes back to any of these sort of wines that are made – as sort of like Frankenstein's monster, where at least with natural wine, you can say for, for whether or not the wine is, you know, Frankenstein what I want to drink. comes for you too, if you create him. Just yeah. So you know, I just reread the book. Oh, uh, it's, it's a great he, book. I haven't I read know, it in man. a while. He but comes the point is, for your family. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> yeah, it does have and a darker you, ending than we think. He gets you on your wedding night. I'm just saying. Yeah. So watch out, winemakers who are making Frankenstein wines. Continue. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the thing with the natural wines is, that, well, you and I might disagree 
with some of the the wines and whether we like them or not. There there is a, a fair argument to be made that at least they're doing something that is sort of healthy for the environment that is that is non you know, sort of impactful in that regard. And that is a positive, even if the resulting wine isn't necessarily what you or I want to drink. The other side of this with the bourbon but so, but so, stuff, so It doesn't make sense. But like, but so what you're saying though is like you're sort of saying like these, these are whiny, but not wine. Like, I don't even know how we evaluate them as wine. Like, how do you review this? Is this, does this get a, a review as, a, as an A or an A plus on our scale? Or like, would Mr. Parker give these a hundred points? Like, I don't understand. Like, how do you even assess these wines if there's one dominant flavor that's blown away everything else? There's no nuance whatsoever. I mean, I think the answer is you, you kind of have to look at how the wine is made and assess from that whether it's something that is it just an the... easy way to cover up flaws? Yes, absolutely. That's my whole point. This is wine that is where because you are adding this incredibly impactful flavor, which dominates anything else that might be in the wine, it doesn't matter where the fuck your grapes are from. It doesn't matter what grapes you use. It doesn't matter whether they're from the same vintage or whether they're blended across vintages. The barrel is the point. And People can enjoy that. I think that's fine. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with people drinking those products. But I think that it is should be considered a category unto itself, especially if it continues to be popular, from what we would consider to be like vintage fine wine, which is right. just a different process. You know, the, the you know people who want a a, nine, a seven dollar bottle of of retail wine are going to probably end up with a wine that has a lot of additives in it, and and. Whether or not they're okay with that is their own issue. And someone who wants a wine that tastes like bourbon is going to end up with a wine that has a lot of manipulation done to it in one form or another. And that's fine. We're not trying to tell you, I don't think, that like, fuck you, you shouldn't drink those things. But you should be aware that those are wines that are, or whatever, beverages that are made through an elaborate process where the base materials flavor is covered up with whatever the adjunct flavors are. And that's yeah, fine. I, guess, I mean, shit, that can be tasty, but it's I guess not just the same issue. thing. I guess that's just my issue. Like my whole issue here, and then I have a question for Tim. I swear I'm going to let him talk again. But my whole issue here is like we don't sit here and say, oh, my God, it's so good. People are drinking Coke. At least they're drinking liquid. And now they'll start <laughs> drinking – you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're drinking a highly manipulated product. And so to say like, oh, that's good for you, I just – I I get very – and like look, maybe then – I come I do come more into the natural camp. At least they're drinking something that like is organic, well farmed, and didn't have probably a lot of sugar and additives added. Like these barrel aged bourbons were created in a fucking lab. And that's what I want to ask him about. Who the fuck created this thing in the first place? Where does it come from? And basically, who is Dr. Frankenstein? Because that's what I want to understand here. Because that motherfucker, I'm coming for him on his wedding night. <laughs> well, I think a funny thing to start with here is when I'm listening to you both talk about the merits of natural wine versus bourbon barrel-aged wine, and you both talk about how one is a category where one flavor profile dominates and overpowers flaws, I'm slightly confused as to whether you're talking about natural wine or bourbon barrel-aged wine, but I'm going to leave that one there and move on to Adam's <laughs> question. And I can't with you, Tim. <laughs> so my response to Adam would be this. Look, these... What The problem that both of you have, now I'm coming for both of you, is that wine is a consumer product. We make this to be enjoyed, to be consumed. It's sold for money. No one makes wine purely because of the fact that they love it. It's something which people need to live off of. And guess what? Consumer products, yes, they are come up with in, people come up with them in labs. We have so much more data now than we ever have before where we can isolate 
flavor profiles that that people will respond positively to that a certain type of drinker who wasn't engaged in drinking wine before not only flavor profiles but marketing techniques as we've talked about these are going to ring true with these drinkers and they are going to start drinking them whether or not you you want to say oh good on them for drinking wine who cares about that why should you be judging what they're drinking and the best part of it for we me. We judge what people drink all the time. We have literally like whole campaigns in the, in New York City against people drinking soda. We are a judgmental society. This is what we do. <laughs> like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I get it. It's it's a really beautiful utopian view that we should judge what people want to drink, but we do. I mean, there's also this other element, which is like, for for all of what you're saying, which is true. Tim, there's a a risk in being too reductive about like, well, just let people have whatever they want and who cares? Like the problem with a with a model like that is in, inherently those kinds of businesses, businesses that are run purely for financial sake. You know, I'm not saying that obviously right. Any person who makes wine for makes wine commercially has to think about whether they can sell that wine and, and what they may have to do with that wine to to make it a profitable enterprise. But presumably a lot of them also genuinely care about the product. And I think it's probably fair to say that every one of these bourbon barrel-aged wines is a marketing strategy and a a heavily sort of uh, focus-grouped product where there's an attempt to make the wine taste a specific way because they know that a specific kind of consumer will respond to it. That's why all of the branding and packaging is, you know, meant to go after a certain audience. And while I don't begrudge individuals from wanting to consume those things that are clearly marketed towards them, I do think that there is danger in being like, whatever, people should just drink what they like because then we end up in a world where all people drink is mass-produced beverage and the three of us don't have a job because who the fuck needs people to talk about and review products that are made, you know, no one is out here doing articles and reviews about Coca-Cola. Like, there's no point. It's ubiquitous. And when these things become ubiquitous and when people stop caring about products that have some connection to a place and a time in the case of wine in particular and people and all that, then, you know, all of us are lesser for it and all of us have kind of nothing to do. And I don't want to get a real job, man. Like, stop trying to fuck with my livelihood, Tim. Well, that's true. But I think, I don't know, once again, the true genius behind this for me, if, if I, you know, go in a completely unromantic direction once again, the true genius about this is these are not wineries, you know, I'm not going to drop any names, but these are not wineries with physical properties that exist. These are websites that sell wines, that market wines, which are produced in the same wineries that are also mass producing other styles of wine, which are more traditional. And maybe you think people should be drinking them because that's a traditional cab or Zinfandel or Chardonnay or whatever. But when this category, if this category does die, what do you do? You just shut down the website, you continue to buy the grapes from the growers, and you make it into a different style of wine. So, you know, like, it's completely unromantic, but I think it's marketing genius. I think it's business genius. And once again, wine is a consumer product. Okay, this is all totally fair, Tim. Fine. Fine. Let's not have Tim on the podcast again Fine. for a while. <laughs> this is too fucking you know depressing ba- for me. Do you know how badly he told me he wanted to come on the podcast and talk <laughs> about this show? He was like, Adam, please tell me you're going to do a bourbon He's just still pissed that we podcast. didn't invite him. He's just pissed we didn't invite him to, have, to come on the Sherry podcast. I know. He's like so mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I guess like, oh, great. Tim's coming back. Can't wait. <laughs> really good. <sighs> no, but fine, Tim. Fine. Mickle. But you never really answered my, my first question, which was who actually invented bourbon barrel wine? 
So maybe that's a trick question because one thing – You just not know. if you, As a reporter, if you just don't know the answer, it's fine. Just tell me you don't know the answer. But do you know the answer? Is there anyone we can point to that says this is the first brand that sold bourbon barrel-aged wine on the market? So there's two answers to your question there. The first answer is this. Yes, there is. And it's a man named Bob Blue of Fetzer Vineyards. I'm actually drinking one of their wines now. It's right next to me. It's a thousand stories. It's the OG when it comes to bourbon barrel-aged wine. Except that it's not. Because despite what we're told, this is not a new category at all. California winemakers have been making bourbon barrel-aged wine for a long time. Because before the judgment of Paris, they couldn't get their hands on French barrels for aging. And they would have to resort to other domestic products, i.e. bourbon barrel-aged wines. They just wouldn't put it on the labels because that was an embarrassing fact for them. They didn't want to promote the fact that they were aging their wines in something which was deemed substandard. Now, people are buying things because of it. They're marketing their wines because of it. But bourbon barrel-aged wine has always been there, maybe not in the completely pronounced style that we have it now, but it's always existed. Fair point. Fair point. Fair point. Look, Tim, it was a great article. If everyone has, who's listening to this podcast hasn't read it, they need to go out and read it. Very interesting. Some compelling shit. We'll have you back on the podcast. It's okay. Uh, uh, fine. If you say so. <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> but I do Just think kidding, Tim. I love you. It, I do think it's really interesting. Um, I would definitely – you know, I think anything that gets people drinking wine is a good thing. In the long run, seriously, Tim, don't shake your head at me. Um, <laughs> but, but I, but I do also think it is important to remember that if if you do come into drinking wine on the, on these fringes, there are you're masking something. Either you're masking it with you know uh, flaws that we're celebrating on the natural wine spectrum, or you're masking it with oak and basically a, a taste from a barrel that's not actually meant to hold wine. But you know, still you're drinking wine, so that's a good thing. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And Zach, keep your eye out for that um, podcast host list that I'm coming out with. <laughs> <laughs> I can't and Zach, wait. Uh, you know, like at least I'll be number one because if if not, we'll have to move uh, Tim's desk into the hall. Um, but uh, but <laughs> he's, getting re- he's getting reassigned. Yeah, but uh, he's, he's gonna he's gonna get the bourbon barrel age beat only. Exactly. Um, if he uh, if he you know wants to. so yeah, but thank you so much. Really amazing uh, conversation as always. Uh, thank everyone for listening and. We'll see you back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry. And the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.